here's the results of us from testing fish. And then you open it and it's just like a 40 page spreadsheet of numbers, you know? And it's yep. like, you, you have to be a biologist or a toxicologist or something to be able to understand a spreadsheet like that. From the Clarkport Coalition, welcome back to Toxic, the mess at Smurfit Stone. If you haven't listened to episode one, we recommend you start there. Previously, we looked at the history of the mill site just west of Missoula, Montana. Today, we're diving into the science. And not because I majored in toxicology and speak the language fluently, believe me, I did not and do not. The reason behind dedicating an entire episode to data, bioaccumulation, and toxic metals is not only to illustrate how truly gross the Smurfit site is, but also because, as we'll learn in this episode, the science plays a critical role in holding the responsible parties accountable. We are heading to County Commissioner Josh Slotnick's house. Um, invited me to his porch for the interview today, so I'm really excited to check that out. The instructions via Gmail were pretty hilarious. Um, apparently his address is tough to see from the road, but there is a bathtub um, filled with flowers. That's the treasure hunt that I'm on right now. Success, flower bathtub located. As I pulled in, there were garden tools, bikes, and recently planted flower pots lining the driveway on the way up to the house. With a couple different parking spots that I guessed were for helping hands, I pulled in, said hello to Josh, who said hello back, and then told me I had to move my car. Hey, Josh. Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hey, would you mind, like, on the grass? Oh, yeah. Sure thing. You got it. I set up the audio equipment on his back deck and had an hour-long conversation with Josh on a beautiful Montana day. You may notice the occasional sprinkler going off in the background. Or the sound of tourist season of Smurfit Stone. What does this look like at the... Gosh, uh, maybe we'll wait for this plane yeah. ramp over. It's one of the downsides of <laughs> it's this. A little we're bit. in the flight path. It's all, all right. good. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Josh is no stranger to getting things done and approaching David vs. Goliath problems from the David position. I asked him about his work co-founding Garden City Harvest and his reason to run for office. Garden City Harvest runs a network of community gardens across the city that are strategically located in areas where people either don't have a lot of money or don't have access to land to have a garden. They also have uh, four neighborhood farms that are managed to produce food for the emergency food system and have CSAs that generate money so the organization can keep running. The essence of GCH is partnership. They're partnered with the university, with Youth Homes, with Homeward, and a handful of other groups. I'm a little bit out of touch. It's been a couple years, but that's the essence of GCH. And right now there's probably 30 plus employees close to a million dollar budget and they're just rocking they produce tens of thousands of pounds of food for the emergency food system and i think more importantly than the poundage is the experience of growing food together that is the best crop and people's lives are transformed through the work and through the connections and the sense of community and, and all that happens to them personally i segued from that into more public service and preceding that i'd been involved with some nonprofits and community activists and organizers who are really concerned about the loss of ag land in Missoula County. And that's something near and dear to my heart. So I got involved and realized that, man, we aren't going to make much more headway unless we change the composition of uh, the Board of County Commissioners. 
And so that's something I thought I might be interested in, but I understood that the Board of County Commissioners does a whole lot more than deal with land use. There are a whole bunch of other issues. Uh, so I, I was able to get a seat on the planning board, which is about subdivision and development and land issues, and then started just paying close attention to everything else as best I could, and then ran for office in uh, 2018 and was fortunate enough to win. So the last year and a half, I've com been completely subsumed by this new project, and I really love it. I really, really am excited about the issues we get to work with. I truly love the people I work with and feel like we are making headway in Missoula County. It's, an, it's a new era in county government from where we were. I feel like we, we're, we're, in, we're in a new space in terms of cooperation with the city and with the state and with some uh, key staff. There's been some turnover due to uh, retirements and things are really different than they were. And Not that they were bad before, but I think they're better now. Mm -hmm. and I'm really excited about where we're at. That's really exciting. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's a great time to be involved with city or county government right now. Josh is also an expert in student farming. I was curious about how his success in bringing people together to achieve a common goal might translate to help activate Montanans in the cleanup of Smurf and Stone. Let's discuss the, the talks that you did nationwide, or at least yeah. a, an anecdote that I heard in one of them, mm -hmm. which is students would show up to the farm yeah. And they would say, um, hey, where do you want me to park your truck? Yeah, and yeah. And where right, do you want right. me to, how should we pull your lettuce here? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and I want to tie that into the county. Mm -hmm. Let's let's transition sure. and talk about sure. the Missoula County a little bit. In, um, in the language, and I guess to finish that anecdote, yeah. you know, the students, after not too much time, it seemed like, quickly... The, the pronouns turn to you okay where it. should we park our truck exactly and exactly. hey our lettuce is you know yep. ready to be pulled yeah the most beautiful thing ab about that experience was that sense of allegiance people would bring to it a personal investment you nailed it and so from a missoula county standpoint and when we look at this smurfit stone mm -hmm. site some of the pronouns you might hear are what are they going to do about <laughs> this site when yeah. are they going to mm. clean this place Interesting. up and i'm curious as, as to your experience in making that transition at a mm -hmm. microcosm of students, how does one approach that from a citizens of Missoula standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question, Kyle, because we can't actually get out there and work with our hands. And what I found in doing the Peace Farm work was when people see results come literally out of their hands and they form friendships while doing that, mm -hmm. that is the recipe for creating a sense of allegiance. I mean, the, the little thing we came up with was um, uh, small groups of people doing humble labor, creating beautiful, tangible results equals a transformative experience. So how can you translate that to what happens at Smurfit? It's really difficult. If this was the kind of thing where like we're filling sandbags together, we're going to rebuild physically, we would get that allegiance really quickly. But this is crazy complicated and crazy technical. So it's really hard. And what people seem to be united behind is that this is a part of our valley we love. It's beautiful. It's attached to the Clark Fork River. It's iconic. We want it cleaned up. We want it back as part of the economy. We want nature to be able to run free there in terms of the river and the riparian area. We want this. So what are we going to do? It's hard to turn that, to make that change. And one of the things that's happened recently that I feel like is really in our favor is that some key positions in EPA have changed. The project manager out there right now, Allie Archer, I feel like is doing a fantastic job. 
She's a great listener. She's engaged with the community. When we asked her, what are your goals? She said, to get this cleaned up for people and animals and, and the natural world. we got to get this thing cleaned up. Such the right answer. So I feel like now we have an ally and now we have a we. Right? She's in it too. EPA's in it too. I asked Karen Knutson, executive director at the Clarkport Coalition, who we met with last episode, about the relationship with the EPA. Sure. EPA initially um, jumped right in when the site closed, when Smurfit Stone went bankrupt. Um, a team was on site, I think within a year, doing all kinds of sampling. And by 2012 or 13, we knew about the presence of all of these toxic industrial by- byproducts. Hmm. And we also knew that there was a pathway to the river. And we knew that it was trickling into the groundwater in a particularly concentrated spot, these 140 acres consisting of waste dumps and, and sludge impoundments. So we knew all that. Um, and then it seemed that EPA started to pump the brakes. And suddenly those initial studies were ruled invalid because of some violation of some protocols. And we just went into, you know, obstructionist, I guess as you called it, faux status. Hmm. We're just not a lot of interest from the EPA in sharing information or even um, believing that there was a legitimate cause for concern. Um, The project management changed up and the situation seems to have improved. So we do now have project management where they respect science. It looks like they are inclined to take risks seriously. Um, What we need to help them do, though, is understand the urgency and crank up the speed significantly more. With a new EPA project manager and additional attention focused on the Smurfit Stone cleanup, how does a team like the Clark Fork Coalition approach a project of this scale? Yes, yeah, step one when we make something a priority is nail the science. We just need to nail down that science and ground truth it and make sure that the science supports moving forward aggressively towards our goal, towards our vision. We get very clear on the, on the vision, and then we build strategy to drive that forward. And then we execute like hell (laughs) to get it done. One of those people executing like hell, John DeArmond, science director for the Clark Fork Coalition. We had such an awesome discussion on, well, science. He was a pro at putting data, pages of Excel sheets, analysis, and studies through a filter that anybody without a career as long as his on this stuff uh, could understand. Sure. Um, So at the Clark Fork Coalition, we try to maintain a science-based advocacy approach to our projects, projects like Smurfit. So my role is to make sure that, you know, our, we, we certainly have an agenda out there. We want to see it cleaned up and we want to see it cleaned up in a timely manner. But we also want to make sure we're following the science and that, you know, we aren't demanding cleanup of things that aren't dirty. I think that one of the fortunate things at, at Smurfit is that the science and the, especially of the, you know, the pollution out there, generally speaking, isn't that complicated. And, you know, that manganese thing that I keep coming back to is one we point to in in part because it is accessible, I think, to people who don't have a background in science. We can say, look, at high concentrations, this stuff is dangerous. Yeah. The state has proposed a standard. It's 100. The... um, Concentrations in groundwater at the waste repos- or at the waste dumps at Smurfit 
are 50 to 60,000. Okay, so it's, you know, even if the state's proposed standard were to increase to 1,000, right, would still be 50 to 60 times that, or, or um, yeah, 50 to 60 times that. So you don't need to be, um, you know, you don't need a PhD in toxicology to realize, yeah, that does seem kind of bad. This seems pretty bad. Like we're not splitting hairs. Right. Um, and I, I think another place where for folks who aren't, you know, down in the weeds on, on toxicology or on you know, water quality standards that we can point to is the fish in the Clark Fork River aren't safe to eat, right? The Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks has issued a fish consumption advisory for pike and rainbow trout in the Clark Fork. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of shocked to hear that because, you know, we live in Montana. You think of ourselves, we think of it as a relatively pristine place. And sure, we have our problems, but the realization that, you know, you can't go catch a trout in the Clark Fork and feel safe about eating it or feeding it to your kids. I think that resonates with a lot of folks. And given that we also then know that all this stuff is trickling into the groundwater and the groundwater makes its way to the Clark Fork, our point is like, look, this stuff is, this is kind of nasty. This ha- this we can't allow this to stay there. Let's get it, just get moving with it. And right. so we know, for instance, that yeah, throughout the rest of the site, the broader floodplain, Sure, we need to take our time and find the hot spots if they exist and get the, the plan together to clean that. But at the, at the waste dumps, you're not going to collect data that says, well, actually, the manganese isn't there anymore, or <laughs> right. there isn't 60 years of industrial waste buried in an unlined dump in contact with groundwater. It's always going to be there. There's no reason to delay any further. Let's get moving. I asked Travis Ross, Water Quality District Supervisor, to explain dioxins, one of the contaminants that I continue to hear about in conversations about Smurfit Stone. Uh, dioxin is probably the most significant uh, contaminant on 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 site, um, depending on where you are and how how you look at it. What media, whether it's soil, water, but dioxin is a uh, is a highly highly potent toxin. It's a carcinogen. It causes reproductive harm. Um, uh, damage to the immune system. It's uh, it's a, a very complex um, molecule or compound um, that is human created and and really does not break down. It uh, it sticks around in the environment for a long time, unlike you know a lot of other other. Uh, like petroleum products, for instance, will degrade into to, um, various other chemicals and eventually break down and disintegrate. Um, but with dioxin, the, that that chemical persists. It, it lasts for a long time, and it incorporates very well with the fatty tissues of of animals, humans, fish. Um, and and it it bioaccumulates so that means that as one creature eats another um that compound becomes incorporated into that 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 being that that animal um so as dioxin dioxin is created in in various ways one um is through burning um the, the act of uh, combustion 
releases dioxins another is um so in that way it is it is uh associated with nature and wildfires but another way and in which uh, a lot of a high number of dioxins are released are through um through bleaching and so chlorine the chlorination um process to to bleaching process that removes the color from say cardboard mm-hmm. or um, pulp that's used to make cardboard um, so if you get a, a box that's white bright white yeah like, oh great this is so pretty <laughs> there's some costs to that there, there's some cost to it yes and 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 uh, the the reaction of chlorine with the organic compounds the the fibers uh, creates dioxin and and uh, then you put a lot of dioxin, you concentrate that in wastewater or in sludge per se, you know, part of the, the, the wastewater treatment process. Um, you have solids, or we call them sludge. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you, you concentrate that, then it, it, it creates a source of dioxin. And as that, that dioxin is picked up by groundwater or flows uh, through conveyances, through little channels, canals on the site um, towards the river, those, those dioxins can be found in groundwater and surface water. And then, you know, the, the, the small bugs, the mayflies, the nymphs, the, um, the stoneflies, those, those absorb, um, they take on those, those dioxins. It becomes part of their, their fiber, their being. Um, those are eaten by fish, those are eaten by bigger fish, those are eventually eaten by us. It seems to me, after talking with the experts, that the science is pretty clear. Can we check that box yet? And if the science is clear, what's the next step? Clean it up, right? Well, who is responsible for cleaning it up? Here's Josh, then Peter, talking about how the EPA determines who, if anyone, is responsible. You'll hear the term PRPs, or potentially responsible parties, which Josh describes as... It's the corporations that created the mess. And then we have the EPA, whose job it is, is, to, is, whose job it is to determine exactly what the nature of the mess is and then create a plan for cleanup. And then they can order the principal responsible parties to do the cleanup. However, if they come up with a description of the problem when, and an order to solve that problem that the principally responsible parties believe is flawed, the principally responsible parties can take them to court and they could win. So the EPA has to base their judgment on really good data, on risk, and what the community wants. And they put those three things together. And that process is happening. And here's Peter Nielsen taking his best shot at explaining the history of the potentially responsible parties. Uh, these companies continue to distance themselves from liability. Um, Smurfit Stone no longer exists. It went bankrupt, it emerged from bankruptcy. It sold to a company called Rock 10, which then merged with a company called West Rock. And I don't even know what they're called now. Then the Green Investment Group bought the, the mill site, which was a total sham. And then that all became exposed. And they didn't do anything that they promised. Green Investment Group. But then they just morphed into another one. That, that It was the same guys that kind of were the puppeteers to start with. They, it's, it's, really, it's really crooked. 
you know, uh, what, what has happened out there. So they're just they're distancing them, the companies from liability. That's their purpose. And really what's going on out there now is the same players, different name, different quarterback, same playbook. They really don't have anything else to work under. They're not doing anything for this community in terms of job or development. I challenged Karen to help us figure all of this out. Can you, when I think about the potentially responsible parties in the Smurfit cleanup site and who's liable, to me it looks like one of those murder mysteries where the twine is strung across a bulletin board and you have, oh, here's M2 Green and here's <laughs> Smurfit and here's Champion. Can you take your best shot at illuminating this for folks listening as to who is the responsible party? Who can we put some pressure on? Who, who can we call on to get this done? My best shot is actually a pretty 100% true shot. Perfect. It is International Paper and West Rock. Right now there's potentially a third potentially responsible party. Got it. And that is Wakefield Kennedy. The third one actually used to be M2 Green, but they have defaulted, forfeited on loans. Oh, man. Um, they're being sued by um, a town in Canada. It, it's unclear where they are. Yeah. They seem to have just been a shell company. Uh-huh. So they're out of the picture. But the the company financing M2 Green and the company that financed their purchase of the Smurfit property back in 2011, they've now taken control. And the EPA hmm. just actually sent them a letter a couple weeks ago letting them know that, okay, if you own this property, you too are a PRP. Sounds like we have our responsible parties. Josh, what do we need to do to start getting the EPA to make some demands? They go, oh, yeah, yeah, we think you're right. And they order the principally responsible parties to do this. And we're talking in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So the principal responsible parties are going to have legions of lawyers who are going to be, hmm, wait a minute, we don't think this amount of data, this amount of risk, and this amount of community squawking equals 100 million bucks. We're going to, we're going to go to court here and fight on this because we'll spend 10 million in court and still save money. So the EPA has to, be, has to make orders that are defensible. And so far, they've showed to me integrity in that they want to do this, right? And they're still working on it. And there are a lot of people, I'm one of them, we're kind of holding our breath. But at the moment, I have not yet given up faith. It's been a decade since the mill closed. That's a really long time to hurry up and wait. A long time for sludge ponds to seep into groundwater. A long time for dioxins to bioaccumulate and continue to do so. And a long time for a site in a town that covets its green space to sit empty and inaccessible. I asked John Diarmit about the sheer scale of this project, and he broke it down nicely. I was reading an article in the Missoula Current from April 11th, 2019, um, where you were quoted as saying, we understand that the broader site, it's a really big site. It's four miles long. It's over 3,000 acres. And yeah, some of that needs some further study to really characterize the waste. But in that critical waste management area, what we're seeing, those chronic discharge to the groundwater in the Clark Fork, it's time to get moving and, uh, and cleaned out. We don't see any reason to delay or really anything that the EPA or the PRPs could discover in the interim that would change that basic conclusion that we've got to address this. Um, so hearing that, and that was April 2019, you know, do you still feel the same way? Is there frustration? 
can you talk a little bit about, and that happened at uh, a meeting, I think, at uh, downtown, which is funny to think about, like a bunch of people <laughs> meeting together. But it wasn't so long ago, but it, it seems a world away. Yeah, it sure does. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, you know, that meeting and uh, what's happened since then, if anything? Yeah, sure. So um, that waste management area is 140 acres or so of the really the most acutely toxic part of the site based on what we know. And one of the frustrations out there is that the investigation is dragging on very slowly. So we don't have a complete investigation of any part of the site. But what we do know about that waste management area, we have a pretty good record of what went into this site. It's a mixture of dumps, places where just industrial waste, uh, office waste was put into the ground um, in unregulated, unlined holes, basically, in contact, at least seasonally, with groundwater. It's also a place where the the sludge from the mill site, the um, kind of the organic waste stream of the papermaking process, was deposited similarly in just holes in the ground, unlined, largely unregulated. so we and we have a pretty good record of what into it the quantities the materials and it's a pretty nasty suite of stuff we've have the deq project manager basically saying yeah you know it's essentially a trash can out there and we know for 60 years they put trash into it so yeah it's a problem area uh there's also arsenic uh some other toxins that have been detected above standards in in that area so given the history of what we know went into the site the volume of those materials, the essentially regulatory failure to treat them with the care they needed, right? We would never allow somebody to build a repository or a waste dump right now um, without liners in contact with groundwater in what is partially within the historic 100-year floodplain of the Clark Fork and probably the active channel migration zone of the Clark Fork. Um, we have the PRPs. They signed their administrative on cons- order on consent. They acknowledged a problem under Superfund. They're obligated to investigate it and clean it up. We want to see that happen. We want to take them. We want to see them take responsibility. We want to see EPA hold their feet to the fire and do a timely and comprehensive investigation and cleanup of it. At that same meeting, the EPA told county leaders uh, that if any evidence develops of an immediate contamination problem at the waste dump while testing continues, the agency has the authority to order an emergency cleanup. Is that what you mean when you say that's already been discovered? Well, it is, but in, in, in this is a this has been sort of a point of contention for a while. We I want to make it clear we're not calling for an emergency cleanup because that has some ramifications in the Superfund world that we're not trying to trigger. We're not saying that it's an imminent danger of this whole dump area being captured by the river. I mean, it could happen at any time. Every spring runoff is a chance where we get the big flood that does it. Sweeps through that valley. But but our larger point, or our our point there, I think is more accurately, not that it's an emergency, but that it's a chronic source of toxic material to the groundwater that we know exists within this larger Superfund site. There's just no reason not to carve it out for for action under the existing Superfund program out there. That investigation of the floodplain definitely needs to continue. We think it's not happening fast enough, but they, they still don't, I think the EPA and the PRP still don't know where the toxic hotspots are in enough detail to get started. But in this relatively discrete area where we have a lot of concentrated waste and a lot of evidence of 
or a background or a, a history of what went into that site and solid evidence that it's making um, its way into the groundwater, which goes to the Clark Fork. We're just saying within the larger Superfund process, right now they're doing uh, the remedial investigation where they gather information. Once that's done, they'll move on what's, to, what's known as the feasibility study, which is where they get to from if we need to clean it to how we're going to clean it. We're basically saying carve out this section and move on to that feasibility study now. Okay, can you still hear me, Rebecca? Okay, Rebecca, can you hear me okay? Yep. Cool. One of the last interviews we did for this episode was with Rebecca Smith, an attorney at law and also a professor at the University of Montana. In 2018, Rebecca received a Lifetime Achievement Award, the Kerry Ryberg Award for Excellence in Practice of Public Interest, Environmental Law. Credibility established. I talked with Rebecca about ways to use the law to expedite cleanup. From the 1950s to basically 2010, and sort of right in the middle of that was when there was a whole bunch of federal laws that were passed um, in the 70s to protect the environment. So things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and then for the purposes of this discussion, two of sort of the biggest federal laws that apply to um, hazardous waste, which is CERCLA, which stands for Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. And then there's also um, there was a federal law called the Solid Waste Disposal Act, and in 1976, there were amendments passed to that law that became known as RICRA, which stands for the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. To say that Rebecca knows her stuff would be an understatement. For the lawyers out there, it's 42 U.S.C. section 9613H. She explained to me how PRPs use the law in a slippery, sort of loophole kind of way to pause their liability in this cleanup. Uh, one of its decisions, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, in one of its decisions, basically said, we understand that that means that the EPA could decide to never pick a cleanup plan. They could never issue a cleanup decision, never pick a plan, never start cleaning up, but still, you cannot file a lawsuit under RICRA unless they come out and say, we have made a formal decision that we are not going to implement a cleanup under CERCLA. And of course, if they never say that, then you never have that final decision, and then you can never file a lawsuit under RICRA. And so that's why we're at this stage with Smurfett Stone where people are just stuck waiting. Because if you look at what that settlement agreement says, it, you know, very clearly not only talks specifically about the toxins, but it then says, you know, everyone admits this is a facility under RICRA. Everyone admits that there are hazardous substances under CERCLA. Excuse me, the first one under CERCLA too. Um, paragraph 31 says there are actual and or threatened release of hazardous substance from the facility under CERCLA. So, those are things that normally you fight in a trial about. Normally, the polluter would not be admitting <laughs> that there was a actual or threatened release of hazardous substance from the facility. So the fact that they're willing to right. admit to that is because they know that in the process of signing a settlement agreement and agreeing to the remedial investigation, they are immunizing themselves from a RICRA lawsuit. And so if, and they know that because that's what 
the cases say. That's what the lawsuits say. And so, you know, that is a loophole that they took full advantage of. So the laws on the books are not helping. You know, Congress changes the law all the time. And so if people wanted to not just clean up Smurfit Stone, but allow similar cleanups to get going across the whole country, you know, in situations that are under similar circumstances, then you need to change the law. It was encouraging to hear Rebecca offer solutions with a history of success that don't require another decade of waiting. It does, however, require citizens to raise their voices, especially to elected officials. You know, in my experience, it's mostly been good court decisions that protect the environment that are then sort of overturned by these two or three sentence budget riders that amend the federal law. And so, you know, from my perspective, why can that not be flipped? Why can't we take what is a bad environmental decision, what is preventing a actively leaking hazardous waste disposal facility from being cleaned up, why can't we take those bad court decisions and flip it and have a congressional budget rider that amends this law in a good way that helps people make sure that their communities are not full of toxic waste, that they're not eating, you know, fish that are contaminated, that, I mean, these are serious things to to be eating contaminated fish, all of those different, you know, negative public health impacts. And so this isn't just, you know, a sort of like aesthetic interest or something. This is affecting actual human bodies. And so, you know, I I don't see why that that approach is not just as valid as an approach where you're just trying to push the EPA to do a circle cleanup. 3,000 miles from home trying to say that I will get there soon. I walk down this way, singing my madness to the moon. The final question I asked Josh, then Travis, was about the EPA. What if the EPA comes back and says, oh, you know, everything looks pretty shipshape out there. Mm. So what I, I personally am going to do, I'm going to look over at Travis and say, what do you think? Yeah. Because okay. Travis is a total scientific professional subject matter expert. And I'm going to look over at John DeArmond. I'm like, what do you think? Uh, we're packing up our bags and call us if you need anything else. Or maybe don't call us if you need anything else. <laughs> what happens then? <laughs> That's not an option. <laughs> right. That won't so, happen, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully that won't happen. Um, that's... That's an interesting question and one that that really um, it it is it's unsettling that that thought that um, you know we have we have photographic evidence we have testimony we have permit documents of the the and and analytical data that that demonstrates the problem. Um, and and we have to it, it's our responsibility to 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 keep pushing on this until uh until the resource is restored it could be easy to listen to this episode and think whoa 
the potentially responsible parties have a lot of legal power. The EPA hasn't held them accountable, even after countless studies showing harmful contamination. How can the town surrounding the site ever compete in this David vs. Goliath situation? David in our town rocks it. Um, and a lot of credit goes to our community. That's one of the reasons I really loved Missoula when I first moved here back in 1992, was I couldn't believe the civic engagement and the community pride. So David's got a lot of help in uh, communities here in Missoula and Frenchtown too. Right. Um, so we've seen it time and again. I mean, Milltown Dam removal, that's a classic case of a community really coalescing around an ambitious vision. And, you know, I don't know about you, Kyle, but there's nothing like, you know, the odds of failure that energizes me more. On the next episode of Toxic, seems sort of pie in the sky, you know, the Milltown Dam's been there for a century or so, and really, we're going to remove a dam on the, in a reservoir? That seems right. like that could never happen. This has been Toxic, a podcast produced by Clark Fork Coalition in collaboration with Pintler Group right here in Missoula, Montana. Looking to learn more about Smurfit Stone Cleanup and the Clark Fork Coalition? Visit clarkfork.org to find ways to get involved.